Digital Drift, episode 17, recorded Saturday the 8th of March 2014, X2. Doesn't it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that someday they will pass that foolish law and come for you and your children. Take you all away. Does indeed. Swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble. What's happened to you? Don't you remember? Sometimes anger can help you survive. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. We're back to review the second X-Men movie, again directed by Brian Singer and released in 2003. Let's dive right in. For the longest time, this was the bright spot in the X-Men movie series for me, until summer 2011, when First Class left it far behind. Now, in retrospect, what's good about this instalment, and what's bad? First thing we seem to notice, all the new detail. The first X-Men film was very utilitarian, very um, stick-block. Round peg goes into round hole. It presented us with the X-Men. It did exactly what it had to do. And nothing particularly exceptional, aside from some really quite sterling performances from Jackman, McKellen, and Stewart. But this goes into details and fills the screen uh, with little bits and bobs here and there that inform on character, that everyone involved is paying more attention to both the comics and their tasks as filmmakers. seem to be a lot more attention paid to background detail that comic fans would be more aware of in this one. Um, not everything has to be necessarily explained, but there, there seems to be more fleshing out than just the, hey, here's a new power, hey, here's a new power that you got in the first one. Yeah. What struck me first was um, the characterization of Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. There are things that are just there about who he is um, they're not just to do with what he can do um, although obviously the teleporting and um, that's a key part of it but things like the circus posters that he has around the church the um, his religious leanings it I, I mean he was a lot more subdued than I'm kind of used to Nightcrawler being but because those little touches of his background were there without anybody really having to go into great detail. In fact, there is a little bit of a running joke that every time he tries to talk about the circus, somebody interrupts him. Yeah. Um, but it it made me kind of, I suppose, on some subconscious level, I was just going, yeah, OK, that's Kurt. There was enough there for me to think, yes, that's him, not just that's a blue person who can teleport which they could quite easily, had they been following the pattern of the first one, just done that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it steps it up, and this was one of the um, 
this was a phenomenally popular release this time. Apparently, it won't run the world record for widest release and that it launched in the most theatres at once, principally because the first one had been surprisingly popular and suddenly everyone was clamouring to see the next one. This is where they really took off. And also it was post-Spider-Man, so suddenly everyone was like, superheroes, yes. And it had been very popular on DVD as well. Mm, yeah. There's other uh, little touches as well, like um, Colossus drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's of course an artist in the comics. Yeah, it's just little random flashes like that that make you think of them more or made me think of the the incidental actors as well as more of uh, a part of the world um, rather than just abilities posted here and there the scene where uh, Bobby Drake talks to his parents about uh, his uh, mutantdom uh, was actually deliberately worked on by uh, Ian McKellen um, with the scriptwriters to make it more of a direct parallel to coming out to your parents Mm. which makes it feel more relevant. I love his mother's response of, couldn't you try just not, not being, being a, mutant? a mutant? It's enough that would even make <laughs> racists and idiots in the audience go, oh, come on. <laughs> so, uh, when did you first know you were a... A mutant? Uh, but you cut that out. You have to understand... We thought Bobby was going to a school for the gifted. Bobby is gifted. We know that. We just didn't realize he was... We still love you, Bobby. It's just... This mutant problem is a little... What mutant problem? Complicated. What exactly are you professor of, Mr. Hogan? Art. Well, you should see what Bobby can do. are the ones who carry the mutant gene and pass it on, so it's his fault. Oh, God. Ali. Have you tried not being a mutant? Although the bit where she says, this is my fault... And oh, yeah. John says, actually, they've discovered that the mutant gene is carried on the, um, is carried by the male chromosome, so it's his fault. But that doesn't actually make sense if you think about it, because if that was the case, why is it that Nightcrawler's mutant abilities, um, or at least his appearance, uh, is, he gets that from his mother and, um, Rachel Summers. That's in Summers the comics well. and the films. Yes, uh, I was, my other example was Rachel Summers, who's a, an extremely powerful telepath, and she's uh, Jean Grey's daughter in the future, but that's comics only. So. Although it's never actually confirmed in the films yet that uh, Nightcrawler is Raven's son, uh, principally because they got rid of Nightcrawler as soon as they possibly could by X-Men 3, because it was too hard to do his makeup and Alan Cumming didn't like it much so they got rid of him uh, it was written into continuity that in the X-Men game oh he sort of liked being an X-Man but then he left because it was too violent um, also I... but they you know they were bringing in Beast and they were like he's blue and furry he's blue and furry I'm confused hmm. again just assuming that people are the jerk he hates these cans stay away from the cans if they can't cope with more than one token blue person then <laughs> Why do they need anyone else when they have Mystique? Indeed. I do like the little interaction between um, Nightcrawler and Mystique in yeah. this, though. Even though there is no allusion to the, the idea that they are uh, mother and son. Although the scriptwriters knew this to be the case. Yeah. Um, but they, they give Mystique very few lines throughout uh, these these first two films. I mean, she's still not massively characterised in two. Um, the attempts to characterise her in one were practically non-existent. Um, but she does get um, a handful of lines that underline her her anger at the the situation that she is presented with and how she deals with that. Um, there's quite a nice little parallel between in one. She says to Kelly. 
are they they're in the helicopter at that point aren't they people like you are the reason i was scared to go to school as a child yeah. in this as kelly so the line is being delivered by bruce davison who i will concede has better delivery than rebecca remain um but um when Stryker when says Stryker uh, shows them the uh, the mansion and says this is the facility that they're planning to target and uh, Mystique says this Kelly. facility is a school and it's there in the tone how dare you this is a school why are you they're children why are you going after them um, and um, having said and, that she did sneak into uh, the same school not too long ago and put goo in the professor's pl- uh, I was going to say placebo cerebro <laughs> and with the goo made professor go all wibbly that's true what kind I of goo was it? Was... I don't know. Just pop it in the machine and it'll make him go all wibbly. I never said she was consistent. Mm. Um, but I, I think part no, of No, Jean, don't go into Cerebro. We haven't cleaned the goo out. <laughs> I think part of it is that uh, Mystique is so often someone else. I mean, we said this before. Her abilities are basically Polyjuice Potion. Mm. Um, that, that whenever we need a situation where we've got to get round a corner, just have Mystique turn into someone else. Oh. Um, uh, she, yeah, she does that like crazy in this one. She, she also, does. she dodges, like she kicks people's asses matrix style and dodges bullets she's an agent in this indeed she is rather more flexible than than we were previously led to believe but um i think because she is other people so often it's almost like they haven't bothered to give her any uh, in-depth characterization of her own i mean I, i suppose you could argue that they're trying to create her as this sort of mysterious person um well indeed um but i i don't know i mean you get a little bit more um personality when she's playing grace in the bar so maybe she just found it really hard to act through the blue yes uh, more specifically i think she kind of took on a very uh um, striking, slightly scary, austere persona once she was in that makeup, and, and um, she was never really given any lines that, that allowed her to open up about that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that I think I see in her performance are actually um, more to do with what I know about her now from yeah. first class, and, and that's me projecting back. Like, for example, again, when she's in the bar and she's uh, they're watching um, Dr. McCoy on the screen, she has a very slight reaction that you could interpret as recognition, but it's very slight. Yes. And she most definitely helps uh, uh, Magneto to get Xavier to kill everyone in the whole world. Uh, without a flicker of, um, yeah, I'm kind of betraying my friend here, and also trying to kill everyone in the whole world. That's fine. We'll talk about that later. Mm. A lot. Uh, there's themes of anger cycles, actually, speaking of uh, what you mentioned before. There's a lot of characters who mention that they're angry, and there's a lot of characters that are patently and manifestly angry, and there are displayed consequences of that anger making other people angry and scared and then this cycle of anger and fear that acts as a binding agent uh, of sorts it it actually unifies the humans and the mutants in that that it's a, it's a, a very raw emotion or a series of emotions that they're all feeling all at once because of being thrown together in this mix it also um goes back to this idea of mutants representing everybody who is outcast because they are different from the mainstream of their community mm. um and uh, that basically that when people have like normal regular anger that most people would have for example pyro in this yeah. he is carrying a lot of pretty standard adolescent anger that most at least young men, and I think to a degree young women as well, would feel just through the whole changes of growing up. Um, there's a, a lovely scene when they're in Bobby's house where he's stood looking at the photographs of Bobby with his family. Mm. Um, and it's pretty clear that he didn't have that growing up. Um, so there's there's all that that's burning in him as well. And then layer on top of that, the fact that he is a mutant, he belongs to a, a group of people who are hated and feared. Um, and then all of his sort of self-resentment and uh, gets projected out into the world and all of a sudden he's this literal ball of burning rage. Mm. Um, it's just that he can express that in terms that blow up police cars, which most kids can't do. Um, but that moment where he stood on the um, the porch and he says, oh, those mutants, those 
dangerous mutants you've heard about, I'm the worst one. Mm. And in a way, it's it's almost comical because we know perfectly well he's not. There's a load of mutants out there that are worse than him. Magneto's trying to kill the entire world. He's not doing that. But the fact that he perceives himself as so unlovable and so... Um, the, all, the only application for his... Uh power is to be used in anger and Absolutely. to create damage. Because it's it's only ever been blasting outwards, nobody's ever taught him to channel that and use it for something that, if not entirely positive, at least not quite so destructive. Um, Do I mean, you know the fact who he that... needs? Uncle Iroh. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. But, I mean, you look at when, when Rogue um, siphons his power, she pulls the fire out of the cars. Yeah. So he could do that. He could go around stopping fires. Yeah, he could, you know, firefighter, bingo, best one on the team. Yeah, he's but, without a positive male influence. Well, he's without positive uh, positive influence generally, I think, that he can identi- uh, identify with and, and click with. But I think to, to sort of widen that out in terms of the, the mutant community as a whole, um, the problem with the whole fear, anger cycle thing is that it's, it's very easy for the humans to say to the mutants who are angry, well, of course we're afraid of you. Look how angry you are. But that anger, first of all, it's for a very good reason. It's, and when you are righteously angry about something, you can't just switch that off. You can't just say, well, I tell you what then, I'll stop being angry and then everything will be okay. Because it won't. And to have that, that expression of wanting to change things in the world and wanting to, uh, to have mutants be accepted. Again, you can interpret the anger that comes just from growing up as a mutant as, well, you're angry because you're different from everyone else. No, because if mutants weren't culturally resented, then being different from everyone else wouldn't matter. Speaking of different, we mentioned him earlier, but Nightcrawler, played by Alan Cumming, uh, the intro to this film where he attacks the uh, White House is incredibly impactful and graceful and actually does rank alongside The Matrix in terms of... Uh, of uh, I, I know I keep coming back to this, but that was the benchmark for action back in the day. To, uh, and uh, we'll talk about this when we do The Matrix. That su- suggested to Hollywood, we can do superheroes now. And as a result, we've had 14 years worth of superhero movies. But yeah, it, it, it shows uh, uh, the, the how terrifying, but at the same time, awe-inspiring, uh, a mutant ability like this can be used in the correct application to run rings around men who have been previously trained to take down other regular men. Evolution writ large. The humans are not equipped for Homo Superior. Gotta make way for the Homo Superior. I do like the uh, comparisons made between uh, uh, Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal as well. Oh, that was nice. Yes, the the freezing everybody and panning across from these stationary humans to the stationary Neanderthals. Mm. There's another really nice side effect of that scene, actually, as well. Um, And I only really noticed it when we were watching today. When Charles freezes everybody apart from the mutants, and then you see the children moving around the, the statues, effectively... Only then do you realise how many people in that crowd are mutants and part of the school party. Up till that point, it just looked like all regular, well, because they are, all regular people milling around. You could also deconstruct that as uh, in several thousand years' time, the largely mutant population of the Earth will be walking around museums looking at statues of regular Homo sapiens. Yeah. Going about their day-to-day, wearing sweaters, eating hot dogs. This is what we were like back then. Yeah, having to use remote controls, poor thing. (laughs) Instead of just being able to blink and check. Having to use freezers and fridges to keep their drinks cool rather than just blowing into them. Again, really nice details that show that uh, there are mutations out there that are running parallel with technology. Mm. Well, like the way magic's used in the later Harry Potter films, um, 
you can see the sea change in how it's presented from the first couple where it's like magic wow moving staircases wow talking pictures wow <laughs> one x-men one that's what you got whenever anybody used a power oh my god he's healing yeah this it's Even... much more little things that are integrated into everyday life so that yeah. it just it's when you almost don't notice it that it's working best yeah oh uh, by the way all of those are people in the museum mimes <laughs> no they were they employed, they employed hundreds of mimes. <laughs> they also used them in the uh, White House at the end, used yeah. to standing still. Living statues. Yes. That's what they do when they hit the big time. Uh, and yeah, in, in general, uh, Nightcrawler, played in an unrecognisable turn by Alan Cumming, is uh, nicely restrained. In the comics, he's kind of this blue, funky elf, and he's very jovial and sort of like makes light of the fact that he looks like a big devil uh, and uh, sort of hides all of the uh, the fear and tenderness that he actually um, has beneath the surface so that you have to sort of draw that out of him he's kind of like he's almost brash he's a swashbuckler uh, and he's very sort of in your face in this we don't have time for that so you need to see somebody who has suffered and somebody who has been hounded and somebody who it's almost like is the other way around you'll see little flashes of him going, I was in the circus. And then it's like, oh, wait, okay, probably not appropriate for that right now. But most of the time, he's 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 very shy in that and they restrain that uh, in, in, a, in a powerful way. They do go full on with the visual storytelling mm. in this one. Um, a lot of the visual characterization is very dependent on the actor. Yeah. For example, Hugh Jackman was great at visual characterization in the first one, carries it through brilliantly in this one. You know, you can see the whole memory loss, confusion, frustration when he's walking around the base at the beginning. It all comes through very well. Yeah. In terms of, of set and background and things like that, the visual storytelling is, is there again. I mean, the, the bit in the White House at the beginning, I don't know if you noticed the two portraits they focused on. Kennedy, who was assassinated, and Lincoln, yep. who was assassinated. assassinated. Folks who've seen Days of Future Past will find this particularly ironic. Places where it doesn't work quite so well. Uh-huh. I like Storm a little better in this one. I prefer her hair. Apparently, because she uh, won the Oscar for Monsters Ball, they actually gave her new lines in, in the script so that she could ask questions. But all Where's her Xavier? lines, yeah, all her lines are exposition. That's the problem. She doesn't have. You're much. here for exposition. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't have much in the way of conversation that will characterise her. There, there is a little, but there's a conversation that she has with Nightcrawler at one point, and they're talking about anger. And the only reason we know she's angry is because he says. Someone so beautiful shouldn't be so angry. Is she angry? I hadn't noticed. She hadn't really done anything or said anything or acted anything. She actually seemed quite relaxed and, hey, Logan, you're back. How's it going? Check out my leather pants. They're lovely. They are very nice. Mm. But, again, it's... I don't know whether to be annoyed about it. It's certainly very difficult to verbalise what the problem is because Halle Berry is a good actor. She really is. But they've not given her a great deal to work with, even with all of those extra lines. This this really does have to come down to script. They, they decide how to characterise. Mm. If she had scenes where she had to emote and she did them badly, then we could blame her. Yeah. But she doesn't. No. What she tends to do is she's very measured. For some reason, in the first film, and the first film only, she has a little bit of an African accent. In this, they even take that away. So you get any flavour of Storm. Uh, she's just sort of an American woman, and she's kind of, you know, softly spoken, pleasant to be around, um, keeps her feelings and opinions mostly to herself. I can understand why Halle Berry herself would be frustrated with that and say, you know, c- can you give me more, please? Hence X-Men 3, she straight out demanded it. Mm. And she got more exposition. Yeah. But she's not a writer. She can't fix that. She can't come in with lines and go, look, this is what I've been reading the comics. This is what I think Storm would say at this point. Although, if she had the um, 
tenure that someone like, say, Ian McKellen had and the years and years of experience. McKellen is able to to say things like, well, I, I, I think he would maybe perhaps talk a little more like this and uh, maybe we could perhaps put in a line or two about... Uh, you think that's what it was? That she was basically just doing as she was told? I don't know. I know she got paid a lot for X-Men 3 mm. and a lot for Swordfish because they wanted to see her boobs. Lasai. Anyway, <laughs> William Stryker, played by Brian Cox, at least makes up for that because he's he's got a, a, a glint in his eye and he's always restraining the whole way through the film this explosive, violent reaction to mutants in general. And that they do neatly underline reasons why he would be fearful and traumatized by exposure to mutant kind uh, through his son and the terrible things that happened to his wife as a result of that. She killed herself as a result of being terrified of her son's abilities. And if you look at their son, you notice that he had ear piercings, uh, as in like the little holes in his ears. You could just say that's visual storytelling. He was a regular teenager, bit of a hellraiser, had some uh, uh, earrings, bit of a problem with authority, especially because his dad was in the military. But then after his mother killed herself, his dad had him lobotomized. Hence the uh, scarring and uh, stitches on the side of his head mm. and reduced to the status of a vegetable uh, being wheeled out and not even really treated like his own son at that stage. He was a tool. And that fits in with what's said about um, him being at Charles's school mm. when he was young. Um, I, the impression that I got was that um, Stryker had sent him to Xavier to be cured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then had discovered that Charles didn't do that, pulled him from the school in anger mm-hmm. um, and took the medical route to try and get his powers uh, severed. And it didn't work. That's a horrible and stark image and uh, brave for this film. So uh, that's that's one of the better aspects of it. Cox's performance is actually bolstered by uh, the younger version of himself, Danny Houston, in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, because you can watch that film and then go back to X2 and see the other side of the puzzle. Mm. There is actually, throughout this um, this franchise, there's a lot of extremely careful casting and performance from actors playing younger versions Mm. of people who've already made their mark on the story. I mean, watching X-Men 2, basically when I see McKellen walk, I can see Fassbender. He paralleled that performance so well that it's, it's completely believable that this is just an older version of that. Charles and Eric together again. Uh, if uh, once you've seen the first class and you can come back to this, the uh, bond between them when they're playing chess, then reprised here when uh, Charles visits Eric. When he says, "Eric, what have you done?" and uh, Eric's eyes show that he has betrayed his friend, it's a wonderful, powerful, heartbreaking, very significant moment between the two of them. And one of the absolute high points of the series. McKellen manages to do that thing in this scene where purely through physical performance, you can see the multiple things that he's thinking at once. Yeah. You, you look at him and he looks tortured, sorry, angry, pleased that this war that he wanted has been provoked, but at the same time frustrated that it's not on his terms. That all comes through in his expression and the way he's slumping down. Followed by, you should have killed me when you had the chance, implying that he actually would have died to keep Charles and his mutant school open, which is a very Shades of Grey perspective to have as a, as a, the villain, the antagonist, and completely at odds with his final decision in this film. Yeah, the final his, decision. his motivation is all over the place throughout the series Mm -hmm. sometimes they get it absolutely on the nose other times they whiz past it and end up in Bangladesh
basically, right, I was trying to work out where I stand on this because uh, there are times that I know I could be accused of hypocrisy in terms of my um, my obsession with the idea of consistent motivation because, A, people change. They don't always want the same thing from A to B, and people that's fine, confused. and I accept that. People get confused. Um, they are influenced by outside things. But you've got the evidence in this standing right next to each other. Striker's motivation to me, is consistent and believable the whole way through, even though it changes, even though he adapts what he's trying to accomplish, depending on the circumstances, because it always seems to come from Brian Cox internally. Ian McKellen, and this is not any aspersion on him as an actor, his motivation changes on a dime because the script said so. This is shit that I never realised I'd be furious about, but until I saw it most recently, before this time, uh, and I really am about the ending of this film. Before we get to that, speaking of Berserker Rages, Wolverine finally gets to cut loose in this one. It seems odd to think about it, but in the first X-Men film, he, 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 he slices up Mystique, but that's about it. He does a bit of chopping back and forth with... Um, Sabretooth, but in this, he straight out shivs fools. He is stabbing those claws into dudes and going, like close up on camera. No blood, but it doesn't matter. He is killing people. He is to bits. Imagine, I know this is fantasy, but imagine if he was holding two enormous knives. That wouldn't be in a (laughs) PG-13. Oh, I see. Because they're part of his hands, that's okay. He's basically just poking them to death. Drop the knives. I can't. He's asleep. No, wait, what? Oh, I see what's happening. You guys don't know this. But uh, when criminals fight me, it's exhausting because I'm good. So they often have to nap afterwards. Wait, wait, you you can't be this. you You think they're sleeping. Look at that poor little guy. He's all tuckered out. However, I think there's a reason for that. Uh-huh. There's, or there's a, a reason for the, the fact that it hasn't happened before now. If you think about how solidly good they are portraying Logan as, mm-hmm. and this idea of him being this... Um, Stand-up guy. Exactly, this sort of masculine archetype that, that uh, they're trying to make uh, the focus of the, the film, and this is what he's um he has these ideals that he tries to live out and look after people and all the rest of it he does cut loose for the first time in this it's in defense of his home and, and his family children. yes yeah and that kind of excuses the fact that he's murdering people oh, yeah. <laughs> left right and very definitely center he is underlined repeatedly as a protector but a savage one mm. Absolutely. It's almost like he's like a polar bear or some wild animal that's been unleashed. Yeah. And again, it's in defense of of children. It's, you know, how dare you threaten my cubs? Nicely paralleled in the nature program. Ah, yeah. I didn't you think didn't of that. get that? That's no. <laughs> I... Sorry, I must have missed that one. I was too busy focusing on the fact that the kid was changing the channels with his eyes. Mm. Um, speaking but, of, okay, yeah. Uh, there's a, a throwaway line from Rogue as well when they're uh, disappearing down the tunnel, and he says, "Go, I'll be okay," and she says, "But we won't." Yeah, yeah. It's not about him. This is not about him. And that's turned around at the end when he makes the choice that this is not about him. Absolutely, yeah. He's uh, given a choice between finding out about his shadowy past or protecting the future. Yeah, and ultimately that that he is he's incredibly noble and forthright when it comes down to it. He doesn't even really think about it that much at all. Mm. Yeah, and also um, another line that I really like in this sequence is when he says, "You picked the wrong house, bub." That directly references uh, Charles's line about, "I pity the person who comes to that house looking for trouble." Yeah, which was kind of in the in the teaser for this. Yeah, but that kind of. shows how his ideals and Charles's ideals are starting to merge. That's how you do it, Eric. You don't use your magical wonder machine that does we don't know what. <laughs> yeah. 
During this scene, there are several hidden mutants who don't really get made that much of a big deal of. Um, uh, you get Colossus finally going all super organic steel, which is awesome to watch. And it's a damn shame that throughout six movies so far, and I'm going to go ahead and guess the seventh as well, uh, Colossus hardly says anything at all and isn't really a character. Uh, in, in the uh, comics, he's a major X-Man. So I would hope that at some point later they, they make use of him. Well, he was one of the, the team in the uh, giant-sized X-Men yeah. opening as, salvo. As was Nightcrawler. Mm. Uh, also, as was Banshee, who's in X-Men First Class, and his daughter, Siren, is here. She's the girl who does the sonic scream. So, yeah, she's the daughter of that Ron Weasley-looking chap in X-Men First Class. <laughs> Again, only uh, uh, if you know your comics and not necessarily stated implicitly, but, um, yeah, that, that would appear to be the case. Artie is actually a Morlock in the uh, comics. He's, he has the ability, he's a friend of Leech, another Morlock, uh, and has the ability to project holograms. Or in this, the ability to have a long, forked blue tunnel. Yes. Unless that's a hologram and he just likes it. Uh-huh. Uh, there's also Danny Moonstar, who uh, you noted was uh, in a uh, blanket to show that she was Native American. That I said that that was visual shorthand. You have a few seconds to show that this girl is uh, Native American. Do you put feathers in her hair? Because I, th- I seem to remember she actually did wear feathers in her hair in the uh, in the comic. I think that was part of her costume. Well, it was it was specifically the fact that it, it looked like a Native style blanket. Yeah. Um, but then you've kind of yes that's the the visual shorthand um but you're absolutely right it is a, a much more subtle way of doing it and then when you get the part where she's in class later on mm-hmm. she's dressed in very modern western style clothes so yeah. they're not stereotyping her she has worn a variety of different costumes in the uh, comics they've uh, yeah beyond What's her power I, I was racking my brain she has like what a, a, her a name was you know in um, Dungeons and Dragons with what with Ranger Cavalier and Acrobat remember Hank's bow yes that oh right okay okay um another hidden mutant Hank McCoy who has gone all over the place in these films <laughs> this is his first appearance in the bit where all the mutants are being attacked by Dark Cerebro, that's what it's called, um, Hank McCoy was supposed to turn up and go, Aah! and go all furry. They took that out. You're also supposed to see Gambit playing cards and going, Aah! and the cards exploding. I hope they didn't take it out because Brian Singer said, what's wrong with all these cards? <laughs> so, yeah, no, that, that was taken out. Hank McCoy here is shown to be this sort of youngish-looking Dean Kane guy, um, not at all furry. Then turns up in X-Men 3 and he's Frasier. Blue furry Frasier. But at the same time, he's the beast that most kids would know because they've seen him in the 90s series and the 90s comics and that's what people know as beast. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and say image inducer. Very likely. And he does, if you think about it, kind of look like an older version of Nicholas Holt. Sort of. Mm-hmm. But surely if he used Dark an image inducer, he'd look like Kelsey Grammer. Anyway, um, but yeah. Nick, in, you know how I feel about disregarding X3. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, he turns up as uh, Nicholas Holt. We can, we can say it was an alternate timeline, but even if you are dealing with alternate timelines, the age of characters has to remain roughly consistent. Otherwise, you're talking about completely different dimensions, but certainly not parallel though healing factor is such a brilliant thing because you can just go they look a bit younger than they ought to because they have a healing factor yeah and fortunately raven mystique also has a healing factor yeah but in the comics i believe she is actually significantly older than she looks yeah so at least that's consistent Raven in the comics, I believe, is one of the few characters that is... Uh, it's actually it's been more explored in recent years, but she's one of the few characters who is been implied is gay. She, uh, she was, Yeah, actually, she uh, did get it on with Forge at one point. She was very, very close to a character named Destiny, who's female. There have been others, including Northstar from Alpha Flight, and uh, apparently I found out that Hulkling and Wiccan from the Young Avengers are also a couple. So they're getting there. But it is 
somewhat slow going and Mystique's uh, bisexuality was supposed to be more overt originally, but it kind of got... They buried it. Yeah. Yeah. Sidelined in favour of the brood. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kelly Hugh as Deathstrike or Lady Deathstrike or Yuriko, uh, again, just like Sabretooth, never given any kind of implicit connection to Wolverine, aside from the fact that she has an adamantium skeleton, just a henchman. Again, just like Sabretooth, nothing. I, I, we must judge her on the same uh, principle. However, unlike Sabretooth, she doesn't seem like a bumbling buffoon. She seems terrifying and deadly and Darth yes. Maul-like. Scary and ass. the bit where after Wolverine's just impaled her twice... And then her face heals up and she, she gets the crazy eyes on and then starts to climb up him. You're like, oh my God. And then when she shifts him repeatedly with her claws, he's like, oh, that looks so painful. So yeah, this is a much, much better, more brutal fight than uh, you get between um, Logan and Sabretooth with all the sort of flying around and wire work and crap in the first X-Men. Also, especially since it's been established in this one specifically that um, he feels pain and oh, yeah. quite intensely when he puts the cigar out on his hand at the beginning. Mm. And she like she hang, like stabs his him in the neck and hangs off the back of him. Christ, yeah, that, that that's brutal. The other thing is, of course, the difference between that, those two fights. It's in uh, what appears to be an old abandoned laboratory, and it feels very dirty and very real and very hard. Whereas in the first X-Men, it's on the top of a model Statue of Liberty and looks like rubbish. There is that. Yeah. Enough respect to Kelly Hugh, despite the fact she gets one line in the entire film. Mm-hmm. And they had to put her in tight black leather to do anything awesome. Again with the tight black leather. Now I no did say, reason for her to be wearing that particular costume at that particular juncture. It's not I, her uniform. I suggested at that point that something a bit more distinctive, maybe something a bit more culturally samurai-looking. Not necessarily Deathstrike's costume, which looks horrible, and she doesn't necessarily have to have the big, huge hands. Something a bit more Japanese. It's so nondescript what she's wearing, as are all the X-Men costumes. And again, another huge weak point of, of this film, and something that they could have addressed because they knew in all practicality what didn't work last time. That's when you change it. But they stubbornly carried on and it's the fucking same in X-Men 3. Personally, I would have kept her in the, the office suit because she's she comes across in the whole thing as, as basically Stryker's PA. She looks like a deadly Yoko Ono. <laughs> it's just going to throw perfume and men's hats at him. Um, that's the, her mutant power. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in just her, her regular work clothes, again, it would have been sort of this idea of, of people's powers just being an integrated part of them. A lot of stuff has happened in, in X-Men 2, and really, it's just plot-related stuff. They, they're running backwards and forwards. There's the strike on the mansion. There's heightened tension, especially compared to the first one. It's, it's on at this point. They're being hunted, and they're on the run. At the end, though, it all falls apart. And it didn't really feel like this until uh, after First Class. But watching what actually happens... It all falls apart. Stryker wants to kill all mutants in one go. Boom, like that. Now, as you say, that's very consistent with the character that we've seen so far. And we could see that someone as sick as this man has become could have hatched this plan over time and decided this has got to happen here. It's horrible, it's crazy, and it almost works. However, after this happens... Magneto goes in to look at what Charles is up to and goes, hmm, good plan. Rearranges Dark Cerebro in XYZ way. How do you do that? I don't know. Just put this panel here and suddenly it does the opposite. And says, Charles, kill all the humans in the world, making Eric Hitler to the power of ten. That is the most monstrous fucking thing anyone's ever done in the history of cinema. Even the... Emperor isn't that evil. So all the shades of grey go out the window. Who the fuck kills everyone on the planet? Except a few mutants. They really are in the minority. But, I mean, who who does that? Who Who is... 
insane enough to believe that the mutants want him to do that. Or that they would be, they would be able to survive in a world covered with seven billion bodies. Rotting. Here's what should have happened. Eric should have thought about it. Been sorely tempted. But the fact that he was in the same room as Charles should have meant that he decided on his own not to do that. He should have had the strength of character to go, that's a bit too dark for me. Even Apocalypse would go, steady on, at that. (laughs) Survival of the fittest, but don't kill everyone with a magic death machine. Well, you can't... You can't rule the world if there's very little world left to rule. But here's the thing. In attempting this plan, everybody in the world, for a while it's mutants, and then for a longer while it's humans, is subject to a terrifying, crippling migraine that basically completely debilitates them. Okay, fair enough. And we can imagine people in classrooms going, and people in streets going, and presidents in white houses going, What about bus drivers? What about plane pilots? What about doctors? What about people on the verge of death already? Eric killed millions. Eric caused untold catastrophes, and it never gets mentioned. Because let's try not to think about that. That is a shit ending. That is a really shit, stupid ending. Now, director Brian Singer credits the X-Men graphic novel as God Loves, Man Kills, released in 1982, written, I believe, by Chris Claremont, as an influence for the script. As in the film, the novel concerns William Stryker, a religious leader instead of a military one, building a replica of Cerebro and kidnapping Professor Xavier so he can use him and it to kill all mutants. The X-Men are forced to ally themselves with Magneto to stop him. That's an interesting story. An early draft of the script had Magneto saving Professor X from Dark Cerebro and escaping with the other X-Men, similar to what happened in the comic graphic novel that the film was based on. According to director Brian Singer, this was changed late in production. Always a bad idea. Not only to remain true to Magneto's ruthless character, but also to give the other characters, namely Nightcrawler and Storm, something more to do in the film's climax. What the fuck? You wanted something for Nightcrawler and Storm to do, and you wanted Magneto to be ruthless? There's ruthless, and there's fucking insane. You do that, you've lost me with Magneto forever. If this is a man who can do that, I don't want to know anymore. He needs to die. There's no shades of grey left him anymore. He is the blackest of black. So yeah, not really happy with this decision. (laughs) But here's the thing. It gets worse. (laughs) I didn't think it could get worse, but it actually does. The X-Men then proceed straight to the White House to threaten the president. They do this in a way that probably on paper seemed like it was a really strong standpoint to, you know, suddenly appear in his office and go, Mr. President, we've got to talk to you. There's no other way to do this, but blah, 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 blah. Oh, you come into my office, you threaten me. It's not a threat. It's not a threat. It fucking looks like one. It's dark. It's stormy. Everyone that I was previously talking to is frozen like statues. You got these creepy weirdos with white eyes glowering at me from the shadows. And you got Wolverine going, we'll be watching. That's fucking horrible. That is a horrible thing for Charles to do. Just off the top of my head, Professor Xavier, but mostly Brian Singer, do exactly the same thing, but in an instant... The president is transported to a meadow. Professor Xavier is standing there and you know immediately this isn't real. Professor Xavier points to his kids playing, talking, blah, 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 doing basketball and says, look, these are just kids. These are you and me. He points to his X-Men. These are you and me. Mr. President, we are among you, but we do not represent the threat that you believe we do. What happened today was terrible. We can't deny that. But we are working round the clock to prevent this. We are your allies. For the love of God, 
you could start a war here that there will be no survivors. Folks who've seen Days of Future Past will find this particularly ironic. I implore you to look at these children and make your decision based on that. Thank you. Boom. And he's back in the office. And all that has just taken place in half a second as Charles beamed into his head. Just a thought, folks. But instead, they come on like the fucking Brotherhood. They threatened the president in his office, in the office he was nearly murdered in just a few days ago by a crazy demon. They're lucky he doesn't nuke the entirety of America in a panic just to get to them. Mm -hmm. Or himself, the White House. A terrible ending. But here's the thing. The X-Men start acting like the Brotherhood because the Brotherhood just started acting worse than Hitler. If you can't at, go anywhere from there. That is the worst writing in the world. If at that point it had been revealed that Magneto was using Jason's illusion-creating ability mm. to make the president think that this was Charles Xavier threatening him. That would be good. I would have believed that. And I would have preferred that to Magneto uh, deciding. But then again, that's not really very noble of Magneto. It's, it's not really the sort of thing he'd do as I understand the character of Eric. He would simply confront the president himself and do exactly what Eric's doing in exactly the same way. That's what Eric does. That's not what Charles does. That's imagine true. James McAvoy doing that shit. Now imagine Michael Fassbender doing that shit. Yes, that works. Folks who've seen Days of Future Past will find this particularly ironic. To be fair, though, Eric in this does whatever the scriptwriter wants him to do. Yeah, but that's the problem. The scriptwriters, again, David Hayter was uh, massively involved. They, they fall apart and they don't know how the fuck to end it properly. So, yeah, that's the ending. Oh, yeah, and Phoenix. So. <laughs> <laughs> this oh, is yeah, supposed to be a Phoenix. hugely significant thing. So significant, in fact, that the novelization and comic adaptation had different endings. It was supposed to be this big secret that Gene, you know, dies at the end. I saw it at the beginning and I thought... You know, when Jean's going through her, oh my god, Scott, these dreams are getting worse. I thought, oh my god, she's got a phoenix at the end, isn't she? That may be, actually, why I was... The first time I saw this, I was like, oh my god, this is awesome! She's going to be phoenix and it's going to be fantastic. And you've had such hopes for the future, but now you know what the future's going to be like. It's constructed entirely of (laughs) feces. The past is better. It's the last stand. Hey, the, the character development that Jean gets in this, though, does <laughs> go some way. They let her out way. for a bit. <laughs> yeah, they let her out for a while, which is nice. Um, but it does go some way to compensating for the complete lack of characterization in the first one, which, again, if you view them as a whole, you can argue that she has an arc there. She starts off as being this incredibly shy, self-protective, terrified child almost who's being very overprotected by the um, authority figures around Are we going to have to finish on Britney Spears overprotective? <laughs> I will leave that entirely up to you my dear Action! <laughs> but I mean, you, you even get at one point um, uh, Scott says to her I'll never let anything happen to you He's already said she shakes the room every time she has a nightmare They fight I the think, Brotherhood on a weekly basis I, I think we've established Promise me you won't die What he can prevent from happening to her you could just about fit into his little fingernail He shot her in the chest <laughs> Yeah, and broke her leg that's not letting anything happen to her, is it? Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, she, she's very much coming into her own in this one. She does one incredibly good deed and then turns into a sociopath in the next one. Yeah, but we'll talk about that later. Yes. Not looking forward to that, are you? You haven't seen it for years, have you? I haven't. <laughs> I have. a very good reason for that. It's but terrible. I, do, I, I like the fact that they go with this idea that the phoenix has always been within her. It just takes something to bring it out. Yeah. Um, I, I like the way that she is getting used to what her powers can do. Um, and the fact that it's making her more confident and she's becoming more of a, um, a, a positive influence on the group as a whole and, and taking a more leadership role that she's never taken before. Yeah. Um, but I think she is a bit of a flag still. Yep. And it's not even a flag which two well-rounded individuals are fighting over. 
Yeah, again, Cyclops in this, they don't know what to do with him. He turns up at the beginning, is very protective of Jean, then goes off with uh, Professor X on a brief mission, gets into a very quick fight with Deathstroke. Strike. Deathstrike. Gets enslaved off camera. We don't know anything about that. Fights with Jean with zero personality. There's no real clash of ideologies there. It's really hard. I mean, I I was sad at that scene, but but he he over-eggs the pudding on the crying. He does a bit. You know that bit at the end of Order of the Phoenix? That, please. Less of this. She's gone. No! You don't say that! Feeling back. She's gone. No! No! It's it's sort of saved by Hugh Jackman's far more um relatable reaction. Restrained reaction. Restrained. Yes. But yeah, I, I do like that side of the ending for this. And I think I was able to get through the... I think when I... The first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, thank God, a decent X-Men film. And I didn't really focus on the ending because I wasn't looking at it with the eyes that I have developed over the years. But now, I, in hindsight, I'm able to look at what happened afterwards and it's atrociously capped off. Most of the film is actually pretty good. It's it still holds up as the second best X Men film. Most but. of the elements of the film are excellent. Yeah, it's still it's not directed in any particularly spectacularly good way. Brian Singer does not have a major flair for uh, delivery and uh, uh, interaction in the same way that say Matthew Vaughn does. He doesn't have the ability to uh, shoot action like the Wachowskis do. He, he can't be compelling. Uh, in the way that Christopher Nolan is. He can't be funny in the way that Joss Whedon is. He's competent. And that's really, that puts him over and above uh, Brett Ratner, who is incompetent. Incompetent. (laughs) I mean, incompetent is a nice way of saying what Brett Ratner is. I'm going to just open up all four barrels on him (laughs) for the next one. My God, that man. But at the same time, this really can't be attributed to one man. X-Men was not a series that was altered through. There was a large production on this and a lot of heads coming together to actually shape it. It's not Brian Singer's baby, not in the same way that, say, Superman Returns was. And as a series, it's been troubled along the way. It's been very successful, but in terms of what actually goes into the films, it's confused and it's up and down. Which I suppose makes it more lively to review as a series. Part of the uh, the strength of this, as we discussed, is uh, Brian Cox's performance. Yeah. There's a, a great He's very scene. serious about uh, what's going on, which definitely it, it, it puts him up there with McKellen and uh, Stewart. It is, yeah. Um, but there's a fantastic scene between him and Hugh Jackman towards the end where he's talking about um, Logan's ideals being nothing and worthless and that he may not remember, but when he joined the program that turned him into Wolverine, he was well up for the idea of getting filled with adamantium and going out and killing people and, uh, and that he's conveniently forgotten what he was like before that. He's basically Jason Bourne. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of, obviously because um, Brian Cox was in the exact same role in the Bourne trilogy, that, that there's a lot of parallels with that. Uh, but at the same time, um, we know that he's lying if we're going to take X-Men Origins Wolverine as a, uh, a historical document, mm. because uh, Logan was out for revenge on Creed. He wanted to be strengthened so that he'd be able to survive a fight with him to uh, have revenge for um, what Creed had done to him. It wasn't specifically a bloodlust to go and kill other people. No. Uh, Stryker is able to manipulate people by preying upon the, their worst impulses because they're very close to his own heart. Mm. He does have a very dark heart. He does have a lot of anger and he wants to lash out at the world. And he, he has this smirking demeanor of um, masking this ugly, ugly hatred Looking at how Jason's powers have manifested, actually, I wonder whether that could be all tied up with his father's uh, impulses to control and manipulate people. And it it did occur to me at one point that um, could it possibly be that Jason's mother 
killed herself because of William's attitude toward their son. And that he's blamed Jason because that's a lot more convenient than accepting his own responsibility for it. Although that's a tragic circumstance if you're so terrified of what your husband will do to your son that you'd rather simply not be part of it. Mm. Yeah. If you lack the strength to be able to stand up to someone like that. Mm. That's a horrible situation. Within that last scene, Charles says something really stupid. I mean, he says a lot of things that are really stupid, but... Let's just say I know well, we a little girl him. who can... Well, yeah. <laughs> we forgive him because he's Patrick Stewart. He's like, <laughs> yeah, he just sounds so good saying it. But let's just say I know a little girl who can walk through walls. Yeah. They said in the Senate hearing that was one of the things they were specifically afraid of. That the girl who could walk through walls would walk into a bank vault and steal things. This is immediately followed by Wolverine saying, We'll be watching while you sleep. Look at that poor little guy. He's all tuckered out. Yeah, that's a good way to keep your president on side. Threaten him. And as a final treat, I will tell you what it said on that massive, massive computer file with all of the mutant names. It says... Guthrie, too, which is Paige Guthrie, also known as Husk, and Samuel Guthrie, also known as Cannonball. Kinuccio Harada, also known as the Silver Samurai. Garrison Kane, also known as Weapon X. Remy LeBeau, also known as Gambit. Eric Lenscher, also known as Magneto. Spelling is incorrect. Artie Maddox, Jamie Madrox, also known as the Multiple Man. Shan Koi Man, also known as Karma. Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch. Pietro Maximoff, Quicksilver, coming soon. Kevin McTaggart, Proteus. Danny Moonstar, who turns up later in the film. Aurora Monroe is Storm. Hank McCoy is Beast. Maria Calistantos, who is Feral. Sean Cassidy, who is Banshee, Black Tom Cassidy, who is his brother, Leela Shenny, who is a famous mutant singer in the comics, uh, Victor Creed, Sabretooth, Roberto Descosto is Sunspot, Lorna Dane is Polaris, Bobby Drake is Iceman, Fred Dukes is Blob, Angelo Espinosa is Skin, Kyle Gibney is Wild Child. On the other screen is a series of folders on the computer desktop. These folders include some well-known individuals or places from the X-Men universe, including Omega Red, Russian mutant super soldier, Mirror Island, Scottish mutant research facility, Project Wide Awake, codename for Sentinels Project, Franklin Richards, son of Fantastic Four's Reed Richards, and Sue Storm, born a mutant, and Cerebro, mutant tracking device created by Professor Xavier Magneto. Closer inspection reveals that Stryker is keeping files on Pyro, Sabria, Dr. Cecilia Rees. That is an obscure reference. Sink, Penance, Nightcrawler, Mystique, His Own Lady Deathstrike, Copycat, Deadpool, Cyclops, Dazzler, The Von Struckers, Jamie Braddock, David North, Sunfire, Boom Boom, Mimic, Dr. Nathaniel Essex, also known as Mr. Sinister, who's still yet to appear, but I really want to see him, Toad, Wolfsbane, Strong Guy, Kitty Pride, Sauron, 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 Forge. Curiously, there seems to be no files for Jean Grey or Wolverine. There are also files on Alpha, Beta, and Gamma Flights, Weapon X Project, Department H, The Brotherhood, Grey Malkin, Zero Tolerance, Massachusetts Academy, Blackbird, The Danger Room, Legacy, Morlocks, Xavier School, Omega Red, Cerebro, The Salem Center, and Bolivar Trask, played by Peter Dinklage. Now that's attention to detail. See you soon.
Folks who've seen Days of Future Past will find this particularly ironic. These cans are defective! They're springing leaks! Wait, but my fish! He went to sleep, and we flushed him down the toilet. He's in the ocean right now, he's alive! No, he's dead. Dr. Fishy! No!